Okay, our scripture passage this night is in Ephesians chapter 3. I have my Bible this time, so if you would please join me in turning in our Bibles. Verses 1 through 13. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Jesus Christ on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. These are the words of our Lord. One of the most difficult challenges that I've ever been given uh, in my life or that my wife has ever sort of saddled me with uh, was telling me that I had to wait before I told my family uh, about the fact that we were expecting Anna Grace, our first child. Um, this was a brutal experience for me because Ginger wanted to do something that was kind of special and kind of make it a surprise for Christmas, which is very much part of her nature, to do something sweet like that. But it was a torturous repression for me, absolutely. Uh, it was all I could do to sort of get that out. And the reason why I thought about that is is because it occurs to me, and hopefully you've been getting this through our study this semester, that good news has an inherent property of wanting to get out. You know what I mean by that? If, if, there's so, if, 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 something you, if you call something in your life good news and you don't want to like tell other people about it, my guess is, is that it's not actually good news to you. It, I would even go so far as to say that part of the thing that we enjoy the most about good news is getting it out, right? Look, y'all, we come to this place in Ephesians where the Apostle Paul is taking up this idea of how he has discovered the purpose of his life. He has been given a commission by God himself, by Jesus himself, actually, to go out and tell the world about the plan that God is unfolding, and as we are trying to grasp for ourselves these spiritual bearings, like we've described them in the book of Ephesians, we're going to find that Paul says that this good news has to get out. In other words, Paul starts to talk to us about the topic of evangelism. Okay, enter into your existential moment when I said that word. I don't know about you, but having grown up in sort of religious backgrounds, I find that there are one of two reactions whenever somebody looks and says, tonight, young people, we're going to talk about evangelism. It's almost like it should echo, evangelismism, <laughs> On the one hand is sort of a sense of, like a mild sense of dread 
coming from the religious people in the room, right? Because most of the time when people talk to you about evangelism, they sort of are piling on uh, these guilt trips about the fact that you haven't talked to anybody. I mean, have you told anyone? Because if you haven't told anyone, how can you really have it yourself? And we oftentimes sit there in our pews or our seats being like, oh, that's right. I haven't talked to anybody about this. Who do I go evangelize, right? So there's negative associations from the religious people. <laughs> but on the other side of the pew, uh, there's the reaction of the irreligious, right? For many of you, you have been the, shall we say, the target of someone's evangelism or some people's evangelism. <laughs> um, and you had a decidedly negative experience as these people sort of looked at you uh, like you were their project or something. Um, hmm, something's wrong here. <laughs> if that's our gut level reaction to even the very idea of wanting to tell people about this secret unfolding thing that God is letting out, we've missed something. The first reason is, is to the religious people, the Bible never attempts to motivate us by guilt. You know, go share your faith, you know, or, or you're awful or something. The Bible never does that. Why should we sort of motivate ourselves in that way? And secondly, for those of you that sort of look and kind of think to yourself, okay, here we go. I simply want to challenge you that it may just be, maybe, and would you entertain the possibility that though someone may have been very offensive in the manner in which they came across to you, you might have actually missed the message because of the messenger. And maybe the message might be so good that it would make you forgive the messenger. Maybe, maybe. Hey, look, y'all, I think when we begin to look at evangelism from Ephesians chapter 3, we need to look at four things. Four things when we consider the way Paul sees his mission in life to get this word out. Number one, you need to understand a mission motivation. You need to see a humble confidence. You need to get a grasp on corporate thinking. And then fourthly, you have to understand the power of the captivated imagination. Okay? Let's just take these one at a time as we sort of dive in uh, through them. First of all, Paul looks and says, I have a mission motivation. We've talked about this quite a lot this semester, that Paul is saying that there was a secret or a mystery, that he's, that's the phrase he's using, that was hidden before time. But now that Jesus has come, everyone in the universe can know exactly what it is that God is up to in the universe. He knows why these things would be here. But in some senses, that really doesn't do it for us. In other words, knowing that God has a plan is fine, but you may have been sitting here for the last few weeks through the month of February thinking, yeah, but what does that have to do with me? I mean, it's maybe vaguely interesting to know that God is up to something out there, but what does that have to do with me? And I was reminded and had a great refresher course on this Thursday night when a group of us went down to Jackson to hear Tim Keller speak. Because he reminded all of us about the power of story. Uh, and to be honest with you, it was J.R. Tolkien who was sort of also one of my uh, teachers on this whole topic as well. And I'll be honest with you, it has completely changed the way that I think about so many things. Look, I want you to notice first of all, and Keller talked about this Thursday night, the, the ability of good stories to move you. Have you noticed how much stories can move you? You know, when you get around with friends, my guess is, is that you're already doing uh, what you're probably going to be doing the rest of your life with your friends, and that is already starting to tell stories. I mean, there's probably things that you love to talk about, stories that you love to revisit, you know, uh, that you have. Honestly, there are nights in which I sort of play a little game uh, when I stand up here and I get a chance to see everybody's face, because 
I'll go ahead and own the fact that oftentimes the things that I'm saying are not quite as scintillating as they could be. <clears throat> That's all right. And some of you begin to nod off. You know, you're looking around here, you're a little sleepy, you sort of jerk up a little bit if I talk too loud. But I love all of a sudden stopping in the midst of that and saying, let me tell you a story. Because all of your heads do this. <laughs> There's something about the power of a story that immediately drives you, that pulls you in. Story has that ability. And Tolkien begins to venture at the answer, why? And what he says is, is the reason why stories move us and grab us is because somewhere formatted on your spiritual DNA, I'm talking about your basic spiritual makeup in life, is the power of stories. And they have a way of capturing you and grabbing you for no other reason than the fact that it is a story. And we describe the feeling of it as if they, you know, I just got so caught up in this person's story that the time just all of a sudden flew by. You've said that, right? Why does that happen? Tolkien looks and says, what if it's possible that life itself is a story? Now, look, we could get real philosophical about this because you do realize that when people look at human history, they've come up with different ideas about what it is that's going on in human history. For a certain philosophical group, they might say that history is circular, right? Just repeating patterns to everything, turn, 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 the 60s song said. <laughs> the 60s song said, as I'm sure all of you know when your grandparents told you about the 60s. <clears throat> Connecting with the young people. In other words, there's a circular view of history. Life is just kind of repeating itself. But the interesting thing about what comes to us in the Bible is that there is an actual narrative that comes to us. That God himself is the master author and is himself telling a story. And human history has all of the earmarks of a story. And this is one of the reasons why any story, even bad stories, even sad stories, have an ability to kind of draw us into them. Have you ever found yourself at the end of the movie when the credits start to roll, like feeling like you need to sit there and kind of come back to reality? Because it has the ability to draw you in. Look, all I'm saying is this. What if story was at the heart of your existence? I used to pitch it to people this way, saying, you do realize that your life is a movie of which you are the star. <laughs> and sometimes your life is a tragedy. You look around and there's nothing but sadness at every turn. Sometimes your life is a comedy. You laugh at the silly things that you find yourself in the middle of. Sometimes your life is an adventure. You've got a hill to climb, a goal to achieve. But the bottom line is you understand your world in terms of a story. I find it very interesting then that that's the reason why in the New Testament the message of the gospel comes to us in the form of, you guessed it, stories. Have you ever thought about how weird that was? And this is what Keller was saying Thursday night, that when God looked and said, I'm going to tell about, I want people to know about what Jesus has done. He didn't sort of allow to come down from heaven a list of the 20 attributes that describe Jesus. No, he allowed four different individuals to sort of tell their story, each of them picking up different aspects of the story while telling the same thing and telling it in their own way with their own impressions mixed in. Look, y'all, one of the reasons why Paul wants to go out and get this message out. And at the very heart of evangelism is allowing other people to see that, that one truth. 
And that is that I found my place in his story. I found myself in his story. There's, a, there's power there when all of a sudden we realize that Paul is not just on a mission. He's looking and saying that I am in an adventure and God is the main character and I get to participate in his story. And look, all I want to say is, what if your life actually is more than just a random series of hit and misses? Seriously. What if your life counts? What if it's important We are drunk in our age on the idea that life is random and meaningless. And I'll be honest with you, I think we are now slowly waking up to the hangover. So that when somebody comes along and issues even a book, and I was talking to somebody over lunch today, a book called The Purpose Driven Life, it sells a jillion copies because people are starving to look and know that my life means something. There is a mission, Paul says, and that mission is found in the story of Jesus. That's the first point. Second of all, you'll never understand evangelism if you don't get this humble confidence. You might have missed this the first time you read it, but there's something weird here because in verse 8, Paul actually butchers uh, the uh, good language by saying that he is the least of all the least of the saints. If you think about that, technically speaking, you You can't be less than the least, or else you wouldn't be the least, (laughs) right? Right? But Paul makes up a word, right? Because he's trying to say something. Paul believes that he's the worst Christian there is. Hold that thought for a second. But then just a couple of verses later, look down there at verse 12, he then starts to talk about the fact that in whom we have boldness and access with confidence. In other words, notice how he talks. On the one hand, he looks and says, when I view myself, I see myself in utter humility. But on the other hand, I see myself as having ultimate confidence in well, as well. Let me ask you a question. How are you going to put those two together? How is it possible to be someone who is both humble and confident? And I'll be honest with you, if you are someone who sort of is on the outside of Christianity right now, I, I can imagine that this probably bewilders you. Because when you typically hear someone look and say, I am the least of all the least, you would look at that person and say, that's pathological. You have problems. You have a bad self-image, right? But if they then turn around and say, but I am totally confident. I am the best of the best. You'd look and say, "Mm, that's pathological too because now you're cocky, right? How do you put together, think about this for a second. How do you put together someone who is humble and yet confident? And I'll be the first to tell you that Christians oftentimes do not help in this area. Let's own it, Christians, right? Uh, Because we struggle with both false humility and false pride. (laughs) Look, as Christians, you know, we don't want to come right out and say how proud we are of our recent, you know, dynamic exhibition of holiness, right? Uh, Because we don't, we want everyone to think that we're humble. We don't want to come right out and say it. Ooh, but at the same time, we just hate it when somebody doesn't notice us, (laughs) We can't stand the thought that nobody saw what what I did. Look, y'all, how is this possible? How do you have humility and confidence in the same thing? Because if you don't understand that, my guess is you do not understand the radical new self-image that only the gospel of Jesus can give you. And here's the, the keynote of it all, is if you are in Christ... 
Paul says he has this because he is in Christ. This is this whole idea that I was talking with you about in the last couple weeks, that this idea of being in union with him, to be so meaningfully and intimately connected with him that I've come to understand that Jesus, follow this, Jesus became humble. He took on my humility, my humiliation, so that he could give me his confidence. Think about the brilliance of that. Because now my confidence is always a borrowed confidence. It's always something that came from him so that I can both despair of myself and survive it with great joy at the same time. And typically, I am bouncing between those two things. There are times in which I am way, way, way too easy on myself, giving myself the benefit of the doubt where I do not deserve it. But I'll be honest with you, I can turn like that and be way, way too hard on myself. Look, y'all, the gospel comes in and says, your, <laughs> your ups and your downs, whether you are confident or whether you're humble, none of it means anything because your identity is resting on someone else. So despair of your own success, but find yourself in him. Look, y'all, this unites two things that we don't know how to do. And to be honest with you, in my opinion, it's the reason why we are so bad at evangelism. This is why we're so bad at it, because people keep running away from Christ in us because they know that all we've ever really offered them is this sort of silly Christian lingo that uh, gives pat answers to questions that they're really struggling with. But you know what? Somebody who had both humility and confidence together, you know what that would create in you, don't you? It would create genuineness so that you don't suddenly condescend to people. You can look at people and say, I know what it's like to, to feel like a failure. But at the same time, I'm not crushed by that failure because I know what Jesus has done for me. Hey, is that, does that connect with anything that you understand about what it means to be a Christian? Because if it doesn't, you need, we need to ask some really hard questions because it's at the center of it. Union with Christ, to be connected with him in that way is to possess a humble confidence. That's the second thing in evangelism. Third thing, we need to remember the corporate thinking. Oh, it's a huge piece of the evangelism puzzle is right here. And to be honest with you, it may be the, very mo the most important. Look at verses 9 and 10 there in chapter 3. Paul looks and says that God has chosen to unveil this cosmic plan where? See what it says? Through the church. Remember last week how he talked about how counterculture that is? Immediately there's something inside that is just like, whoa. Surely Paul doesn't mean, you know, that place down on the corner of, you know, Main Street and Elm where you've got a bunch of stodgy old people you know, and, and, and church membership. I mean, come on, Les, I'm, I'm part of the church. I'm, I'm a church because we're a part of the invisible church, which is like, you know, like all the Christians. Ha. Now, last week I tried to push on you. No, whenever you see Paul talking about church, like that's what he means. He means like a church with elders and, and deacons and, and, and worship meeting times and, and nursery duty uh, and, 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 and the sacraments, right? Nursery duty and the sacraments coming together in the same sentence. Go figure. <laughs> and Paul looks and goes, guess what? All these amazing things that God is doing, he's going to work it out in that place. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, you ain't never been to my church. There ain't nothing cosmic going on in my church at all. Never been more bored, to be quite frank with you. Right? We say that, don't we? 
But look, y'all, please don't forget that just because the visible manifestation of the church has soured you, that we're going to throw the baby out with the bathwater and get rid of the idea of church at all. Because remember, this is so huge. The point of the church, as a matter of fact, the point of God's plan, as it says in verse 6, look at that again. Verse 6 has not ceased to blow me away. This mystery is, if you want to know what the mystery of God is, here it is. What, what is God doing in the universe? Here it is. Ready, ready, ready. Verse 6. That the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body. That doesn't sound interesting. Un, un, that doesn't sound interesting to you, does it? Well, look, if you were a Jewish person, the idea that those people are not going to be a part of our group was immediately offensive. In other words, look, y'all, the whole point of this idea is the inclusion of outsiders. The church is one of the most unique organizations in the world because it's an organization that defines itself by looking outside of itself. Most other organizations have to define themselves by looking inside at themselves. But that's what we call inner rings. Remember freshmen? Talked about this last night at my house. That creates an inner ring nest to people. The church is different. We look out because we're looking for people on the outside to come and bring them within our midst. Those who feel like they're on the outside. Look, y'all, the word church is the word ecclesia. And literally translated, it means the called out ones. If you claim to be a Christian, you are a part of Jesus' church. And if you are part of Jesus' church, you are a called out one. And Paul is assuming that therefore you will become someone who calls out other people and enfolds them into this community called the church. Hmm... Okay, if you ever thought that your church was failing you, this might, this might be the one, especially here in the South, that uh, unsettles us the most. Look, y'all, the point of the church is to bring you in connection with people that you otherwise would have nothing in common with at all. Like, let that sink in. Because what that means is that a church that is dominated by people that look like you that come from the same socioeconomic class as you do, that only listen to the same kinds of music that you do, is something that is probably, in its essence, far away from God's intention for this organization. You got to plant this down there because this is going to upset you a bit. Because Southern Christianity, the church is kind of that place where I can only be with people like me. I've heard people say that before. Well, you know, we just, I mean, I mean, we're not racist. We just want to worship people with people like us. And I want to say, well, then go find a different religion. Because this religion is about bringing you in contact with people for whom you have nothing else in common other than Jesus. It's about the outsiders. And so when we go to do evangelism, we are trying to look and say that the work here is about those people. And it meets a huge need in Christians. And you know what that need is? You can't do it all. You are not capable in yourself of bringing anybody to Christ and, bring, and certainly not bringing them to maturity. You're not capable of this. Look, if you are the primary element in the, in the evangelizing of someone's life, then what are you going to typically produce in them as you do? You. 
God forbid, or me, God forbid. But if your view of the Christian life and your view of evangelism is to get someone incorporated into a body of people, then all of a sudden you realize that I've got a pastor here who can teach them, who can answer all those questions I can't figure out. I've got a single mother down the pew for me that can teach them patience. I've got a former drug addict over here who can teach them about God's power over sin. I've got a bunch of little children running around that can teach them about joy. Do you see what I'm saying? (laughs) You need the rest of the body because you are not equipped on your own to bring anybody into spiritual maturity. It takes everybody working together in that context. Look, I mentioned this here. Because I hear a lot of people that get on the Ole Miss campus and start talking very, very uh, vivaciously about the idea of discipling. I'm really looking for someone to disciple me. Now, look, if you're wanting to have a purposeful relationship with someone where they hold you accountable, where you meet on a regular basis, that's great. But to be honest with you, sometimes the way in which I hear you talking about it, it slouches towards an unhealthy way of making that person to be a disciple as they are wrapped up in you. And the bottom line is, is it takes a village. (laughs) Hillary Clinton said one time, right? (gasps) Hillary Clinton. (laughs) Corporate thinking. Fourthly and finally, and I'll finish with this. The fourth thing that you need to understand about evangelism is that there has to be a captured imagination. Behold the power of the captured imagination. I love verse 8. This one's a fun one. Look at verse 8. Honestly, it's one of the most tender phrases that Paul uses in his view of himself. Because he says, when I think about this new job that I've been given, this commission to preach to the Gentiles, my goal is to let them know about the unsearchable riches of Christ. Hey, that word unsearchable there, literally translated, means not to be traced out, unable to be traced out. In other words, what Paul is saying is, I have stumbled across something that is too vast to even explore. It's too big for me, and I'll never come to the end of it. It's that mind-numbingly huge. John R.W. Stott, who's a great old uh, Anglican uh, uh, um, commentator, says this. He says, translators and commentators compete with one another in their attempt to find the dynamic equivalent in English of this word. The riches of Christ, they say, are unsearchable, inexplorable, untraceable, unfathomable, inexhaustible, illimitable, inscrutable, and incalculable. What is certain about the wealth of Christ has and gives is, what we, is that we shall never come to the end of it. Whew. You will never exhaust this reservoir. It will be there for forever. Look, y'all, Paul was simply convinced that coming to Jesus was the opposite of impoverishment but immeasurably enriching for him. And I simply want to leave you with two thoughts, and this is what you are to think about in this next week, right? First of all, does that even make you curious at all? I've gotten to where I love asking you this question because for most of us, when we hear these kinds of things, these adjectives lie there and you think, the unsearchable riches of Christ. And it just doesn't register anything. You know what I'm saying? There's no thrill, there's no excitement, there's no, there's no, is there ever a risk of you like losing the rest of my sermon tonight because you started daydreaming about the unsearchable riches of Christ? 
That would actually be okay. You're okay to drift away on that one. But no, it never does that. It lies inside of our hearts so often with a cold, dead thud. What does that mean? And to be honest with you, I grew up with most people making me feel guilty about that cold, dead thud. But I don't want you to do that. What I want it to make you do is to get curious. Is that maybe somewhere along the line, I missed something. And I know that we congratulate ourselves in the, in the Christ-haunted South at having heard all of this before. But maybe you didn't. <laughs> How about that for, what, for trying? Maybe you missed it. Maybe there's something there, a key that you missed, a personal application that you've not yet seen, an experience that God is waiting to bring you through, on the other side of which is an unfathomable wealth of riches that will never come to an end. Maybe. And some of you look and say, oh, okay, okay, so what do I do? Walk out that door and go find it. Oh, there's lots of ways to do it. Prayer, that's a good one. Reading the Bible, hmm? Two thumbs up for Bible reading. Going and getting involved in a church. Going and getting involved in and with the people of God. Right? Where do those things happen? Where are you looking for him? Secondly, please understand that good news has to be told. Good news has to be told. Look, y'all, you are not enjoying something if you don't want others to see it. Uh, I love to tell the story at weddings. It's one of my favorite stories to tell at weddings about my children and uh, their, um, uh, my little girls when they would play dress up when they were little. We were, actually, we still are, inundated with Barbie dolls, okay? I mean, they are all over the place in my house. Um, and I used to get a little self-conscious because I thought, you know, is this really healthy? Because they would dress up from head to toe and they would have their little tiaras on and they would sort of come waltzing through. Um, <laughs> I mean, literally, we would go out in those dresses. And we're going, Daddy's going to go get a haircut, girls. You want to go with him? Yes! And they'd go put on a dress, you know, with big, you know, what do you call the, what do you call the fluffy stuff? The, a tutu on, right, exactly. Um, <laughs> that was a guy who answered that question. Um, it's okay, Blake. Um, but I used to always look at him and get a little self-conscious, thinking to myself, uh, is this really healthy for them to be all in the, living in that dream world? Hmm. <gasps> Until Ginger and I had a couple of conversations when they were in that age where I all of a sudden realized, wait a minute, they are living out a story where somewhere in a castle far, far away is a hero who will ride in on a white horse and rescue them. And it suddenly occurred to me, that story's true. I remember the first movie I ever cried in. The first, time, the first movie I ever cried in was It's a Wonderful Life. Right? And, I, and I, it still registers emotionally with me now, but I'm sure because of family and other reasons. But I remember being a little kid and watching that movie and getting to the very end where George Bailey is the richest man in town. You know, and they're toasting everything, and all of a sudden Clarence gets his, uh, you know, his wings or whatnot. And I, I start to just fall apart. And you get real self-conscious when you've been grabbed up like by a story like that. But the funny thing is I suddenly realized the more that God began to reveal to me the idea behind his gospel is that the reason why that moves us is because it's a true story. <laughs> because there really was a heavenly messenger that came down from heaven to save someone from the brink of self-destruction. And all of a sudden, in the moment of seeing that story, I saw myself in that story. 
And what C.S. Lewis says at the very end of the last battle in the Chronicles of Narnia is he looks and he says that the best thing about when the children finally made it to Aslan's land is he looked down there and whispered to them, this will never end. Further in, higher up. Look, it's okay if tonight you look and go, I don't have an experience of that, Les. My question is, are you even curious? What if... There was something there that would absolutely capture your imagination and be so, be so interesting that honestly you couldn't help but talk to someone. Did you hear what he was saying last night? What do you think about that? Look, y'all, the invitation of the book of Ephesians is to come in and wonder. Wait a minute. Go back to that chapter one. What was Paul saying? Wait a minute. We were, we were what? Well, what's redemption in his blood? What, what is this deposit of the spirit? What? Because it's, inexhaust, it's an inexhaustible reservoir of riches, Paul says. I dare you to go look into it. Let's pray. Then, Lord Jesus, would you sweetly draw us in to something that otherwise we would not be able to have any understanding of. Lord Jesus, draw us into seeing you in a way in which we don't even have any idea of right now. Because to us, we've, got to, we, we've accessed those riches. We have them. They're... they're they're, they're commonplace. They're old hat. Maybe tonight, Lord Jesus, could you give us the grace of experiencing it? Maybe, maybe somebody for the first time saw something in being in union with you that they never saw before. Lord Jesus, if you would do that, you would, you would make our night worthwhile, and you might even make us better evangelists. Would you do that? For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.